Hello and welcome. You're listening to This Is Some Scene. I am James Ippoliti, and I am also the host of the Real Demons of Pop Culture podcast and many more podcasts soon to come. This Is Some Scene was a podcast I produced back in the mid-2000s to about 2009. Season one of This Is Some Scene is going to be those lost interviews. Interviews with people like Tommy Wiseau, Joe Dante, Amber Benson, Crispin Glover, so many more at the dawn of podcasting. I had a group of people that had a lot of fun doing these podcasts. Now, the quality is not as great as it could be because it was at the beginning of podcasting where it was very hard. It also was recorded live. Most of the calls were live, as you will see. And so the quality is not to the standards of 2023, but they are pretty good for 2008, 2009, etc. You may hear the voices of Andrea. You may hear the voices of Eric Feasterville, also known as Chris Blake Sasser. So grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and enjoy these interviews from the beginning of the podcasting universe. In season two, we will be introducing new interviews to continue the legacy of This Is Some Scene. 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 (laughs) Tonight, author of High Fidelity, About a Boy, A Long Way Down, Slam, Fever Pitch, just great novels. His adapted screenplay from Lynn Barber's memoir and education is nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay at this upcoming Oscars. The film is nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actress, who's Carrie Mulligan, and Best Adapted Screenplay. The film was also nominated for nine BAFTA Awards. And Education is one of 2009's finest motion pictures. If you haven't seen it, I highly, re- highly recommend it. Uh, it's an honor for me to interview Nick Hornby. I've been very lucky on this show to interview people I really admire. And without further ado, my interview with Nick Hornby, this was recorded earlier. He was at the Oscar luncheon today, took some time out of his schedule to talk with us at This Is Some Scene. So enjoy it. I had a great time interviewing him. And here we go. Hi, James. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much for calling in. No problem. Welcome to the show um, and taking the time out of your schedule. Uh, it's a very, it's a, a huge honor for me to be interviewing you because I, I always cite About a Boy as my favorite novel. I just love that book. Oh, thank you. And congratulations on the Oscar nomination for An Education. Thanks. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been quite a day. Yeah, it's uh, the luncheon today, correct? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, to my knowledge, your only other screenplay credit was for the adaptation of Fever Pitch, the 1997 version. Um, yeah. So why did you choose not to write the screenplays for High Fidelity and About a Boy? Um, well, <laughs> I think when um, when someone asked me if I wanted to try and adapt Fever Pitch, I didn't even know um, whether I was going to have a career in writing. And um, 
and I thought, well, I better do this because someone's going to pay me to do it, and um, uh, it will stop me from writing um, paperback reviews for a holiday magazine. So um, that's why I took the job on. <laughs> but since, since then, um, when I realized that actually it was going to work out and I was going to be a professional writer, uh, I, I just didn't want to go back to uh, to the books. I, I, once they were done, they were done, and I, I couldn't stand the thought of another three years pulling them all apart again. So um, I'm very happy to let other people do them, and any screenplay work I do will be something different. And, and you've been very lucky with the adaptations. Uh, but but that said, how do you feel about like the ending of About a Boy? I, I mean, it's different from the novel. I prefer the novel's ending, but do you ever have issue for the changes that have been made? No. Um, I think that the moment you've sold your book, then as long as you trust the people involved, which I did in, implicitly with Chris and Paul White, they're going to do what they have to do to make a movie work. And the movie is different from a book. So um, my ending in the novel was deliberately, I, I guess, pathetic. Um, it was quite downbeat. And, um, and, and downbeat doesn't work so well um, for the kind of mainstream movie that they were trying to make. Also, they'd, they'd, for reasons that um, I understood, they'd completely cut out all the Nirvana stuff, so yes. uh, the ending of the book wasn't going to work for them anyway. Right, yeah, they, they went with the school concert. And, you know, it works. It, it is definitely a Hollywood ending. And it's one of those rare, rare, yeah, it's a rare time where I actually enjoyed the book and the movie. I, I enjoy them both. Uh, yeah, and, I, 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 I love the movie of About a Boy. And... Um, and I think they found a way of, of, of um, putting a Hollywood ending in there that undercuts itself as well. So I, I think it's totally not so different from the book. And great casting with, uh, well, actually for the whole film, but uh, Hugh Grant as well was just superb. And, uh, yeah, our boy Nicholas Holt has gone on to, uh, you know, have a proper acting career as well. Yes, I, he I has. been a single man, but he's really good. Right, from Marcus, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it that made you want to write the screenplay for Lynn Barber's memoir? For well, I, read the, I read the piece. Um, it was a, uh, a 10 or 12 page essay in a magazine when I first saw it. And my wife's an independent producer. And I, the first thing I said was, you should do something with this. Um, I know that she's looking for material. And, and I said, I think this could make a movie. And, uh, and then we talked about it and she, she said, you know, well, do you want to have a go at adapting it? So, um, I liked it for me because uh, it felt tonally quite similar to some of the things I pitched for in fiction. It was funny and it was painful, and um, that seemed right up my street. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I read this somewhere, but it's in my head that I heard you say something like you felt fever pitch and, and education had similar had something similar to them. Yeah, yeah. What it was, what what hooked me in was that. Um, Partly what the book of Fever Pitch was about, I think, was um, about being a suburban kid who's frightened of being locked out of the city. And my way of getting into the city was to pay you know, a very small amount of money and stand in the middle of a football crowd in the middle of London. And um, I think that Carrie's character, Jenny, has exactly the same concerns. She's you know, a smart suburban kid who is frightened that she's going to be locked out because of the conventional path that she's on and and by hooking up with that guy getting in that car 
she gets to see movies and hear music and eat food and all the things that keep us alive. And um, I so identify with that. Right. Now, was that difficult to turn a 10-page essay into a feature film? No. Um, I, I think it's, it's more difficult to turn a 500-page book into a feature film. <laughs> um, Lynn Barber's piece gave me a structure and it gave me a suggestion of characters and then I had create, complete creative freedom to do what I wanted, you know, to invent dialogue for those people. And so it was a really a joy to adapt. And um, I think essays are different from short stories. I mean, you know, in an essay, there's maybe a couple of sentences that uh, would give you 10 or 12 scenes for a film. So um, I, I don't think a short story does that because a short story tends to focus minutely on a small period of time. Uh, but, but the essay was quite sprawling, even though it was short. Did you have any uh, insight from Lynn Barber, like while writing the screenplay? Did you speak with her? Um, yeah, we we spoke, and um, she read drafts. Um, she was really helpful on period and and the mindset of a, a teenage girl at that time. So, you know, for example, it was just Lynn happening. I think talking about how the, the entire cultural conversation she had when she was a teenager was with France which hadn't really occurred to me. You know, I grew up in a time when the cultural conversation was with America. But mm -hmm. those kids, end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s, they were reading French novels and watching Nouvelle Vague films and wanting to eat French food but not knowing where to get it and listening to chansons. And um, that struck me as fascinating and something quite different. Now, uh, did you outline this and... Uh do you use index cards or write a treatment when you were putting this together? Uh, I have to say no. No? You just went right in and started <laughs> writing? Just That's pretty no. amazing. How long, well, did take how, how long did it take you to write this, like a first draft? Uh, uh, the first draft was probably done in a few weeks, um, uh, six or seven weeks. But, you know, there's a long time in between drafts. And, um, you know, we didn't have funding for the movie. There was no one really interested in making it. So um, the process was long and slow because um, uh, I had to sort of get myself up in between drafts thinking, you know, is there really going to be a point to another draft? Because I can't see anyone giving us the money for this. But I'm glad right. that I kept going. Now, the, you know, the film has an amazing cast. Uh, were you aware of the actors when you were writing the script? No. Um, I mean... Uh, for Carrie's part, I knew that we would have to cast a girl that none of us knew, basically. Um, mm -hmm. There aren't that many famous <laughs> actresses who are capable of playing that age range. So uh, I, I had no picture for that part at all. Um, and I'm not really very good at actors. Uh, so I just wanted to make the, the characters as real as possible and, and take advice from other people, let other people cast them. Uh, but I was bowled over by the quality of the, the cast that we got. Amazing, yes. And Carrie Mulligan playing 16, she's, I think, 27. And, uh, wow, she pulled well, she, that off. She's, she's 24 now. She was 22 right. when she, she was in the film. But, yeah, I, I mean, when they said they were casting a 22-year-old, I thought, okay, well, that's going to be a different kind of film. But the first, then the first time I saw her in a school uniform, I thought, oh, <laughs> no, well, she's, she's just not 22. So it's okay. No. Yeah, that was amazing. Um, now, but the memoir didn't really have any dialogue, so how did you find the voices for these characters? 
Well, I think that's something that comes, you know, draft after draft. Um, like the Rosamund Pike character, that was a, a line that Lynn had that, uh, you know, she was kind of besotted with this girl because she was so beautiful and she thought she was enigmatic until she opened her mouth and then she realized she was just kind of dim. So um, that, you know, is a kind of a gift, a line like that for a character. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think Carrie's voice, Jenny's voice emerged, um, you know, two, three drafts in properly. I think one of the problems when you're adapting memoir is chipping away uh, the maturity of the narrator, because obviously Lynn's a 60-year-old woman uh, right. back on her time when she's 16, 17, and that kind of infects a lot of things. That that seeps into attitude, seeps into the, maybe the odd line of dialogue that she had there. And and so I, I had to, I think, draft after draft, chip that, that away until that character is actually inhabiting the present. Now, was, was Jenny's character in some way like a metaphor for Britain? Because, uh, you know, she's on the verge of change, and the country must have to have been, you know, prior to the Beatles also. Did yeah, that well, that was one of the things that really interested me about the period. And the more I read about it, the more it struck me that Britain in 1961 had more in common with 1945 than it had with 1963. Uh, this enormous change was on the way. And you could kind of smell it in the air, but it, there wasn't anything really tangible. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I started to think about Peter as representing the 60s. You know, David, Peter's yes. character, as representing the 60s and arriving in Jenny's house a couple of years earlier. Yeah. Now, the novels you, you write usually consist of these boys who refuse to grow up and they're holding, that, holding on to that inner child. But Jenny, sort of the child longing to be an adult or living in an adult world. Now, was that difficult to make a switch with your lead character? Yeah, I, to me, it feels like a while since I've, I've done those, uh, those characters. Um, certainly, it's true of the first couple of books, but um, since then, I've written How to Be Good, which is narrated by a woman you know, on the verge of a divorce, and uh, right. A Long Way Down has a couple of males, a couple of females, different ages. So I feel right. I've had a, a, a period of time where I've been moving... Uh, further away from, as it were, Will in the Bowser Boy. Now, do you think uh, Slam helped you a lot with uh, writing for the teens? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote Slam and um, and an education pretty much side by side. Um, so, um, yeah, teens having sex were, uh, were on my mind <laughs> for a couple of years. <laughs> uh. All right, well, now, the character of David's much older than Jenny. Um, I think that in her memoir, she says she's 20, he says he's 27, but she believes he's in his 30s. Yeah. Um, now, what was your tactic to develop that relationship while trying not to alienate the audience with the difference in their ages? Well, I thought, first of all, one thing that was really helpful to me was that David didn't seem that interested in sex. Um, that wasn't entirely what it was about for him. And I think if it had just been about an older man lusting after a younger girl, I don't think I'd have been so interested in doing it. But uh, there's something quite strange about his interest in in Jenny. I don't mean perverted, but um, something unusual. And and I think that um, it's her education he's as as interested in as anything else, in fact, that he sees in her a chance to remake his life, to live a kind of life that he's dreamt of and, and... has been denied because he's made clearly various mistakes in his life. And, and I guess my general policy was to try and make him 
uh, as sympathetic as possible, given the confines of what he's doing in the first place. A guy who draws up at a bus stop and, and, and picks up a teenage girl is always going to be questionable. So you can only do so much with that. But um, I wanted to find uh, the, the human point in him. Yeah, well, I found that the way you handled him uh, was very interesting because it was, at the beginning, you know, there's sort of a creep factor to it, this guy pulling up yeah, the girl. Yeah. And, and, um, but, but what I think worked a lot was his relationship with her parents, uh, you know, seeing how they were charmed by him. Um, you know, sense that he was very good at, at just getting people to like him. And especially Alfred Merlin as, as her father was one of my favorite performances. Yeah, he was wonderful. Well, I, I've been at Q&As with Peter Sarsgaard, and he said, you know, if you look at it, that, that David is really a great optimist, and all he wants to do is make people happy. Um, you know, the only time the parents laugh is, is when David's in the room. And, right. Um, you know, he, yes, he's a bad guy. He does some bad things, and you know, he's he's carrying on this inappropriate relationship with a teenage girl. But there is a part of him that sees his job as just being able to bring sunshine to people. Now, did Lynn Barber have a any issue with that, like um, showing him in sort of a somewhat positive or at least sympathetic role? No. Uh, she, you know, like, like I was saying earlier on, she has, uh, about my books being adapted, she understood that if it was going to be a movie, then things had to happen. I had seen something in it that meant something to me, um, and this is what happens to autobiography if it works, I think, that, that it resonates with different people in different ways. So that was the movie I wanted to write, and she was happy for it to be a movie. So I think, you know, Lynn isn't Nelson Mandela. Uh, if you know what I mean. You yeah. don't have to be historically accurate with the life of an English journalist that not many people know. Um, she's a prism through which I'm looking at other things. So I'm not constrained by historical accuracy with, with doing that. Right. Now, I read some controversy if, if over... You're doing, sorry, if, if, you're, like, if, you're, if you're writing Invictus and Nelson Mandela escapes from prison after three years, you've got some problems with that story. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, um... Yeah, right. <laughs> but I, I've read some controversy over David's character being Jewish, and I know the actual yeah. uh, historical uh, Simon was his character. The, the real man's yeah. name was Jewish. And I don't want to get into it because I think suggestion is ludicrous to begin with, but um, I'd like to know, you know, from you as a writer, do you feel it's getting more difficult to write a negative character without some people finding something to be offended by or, or reading into things? Well, it's been a real eye-opener for me, that process, because um, uh, I, I think it's, I have to say, particularly difficult in America. Um, you know, I developed this film with um, a, 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 an English-Jewish um, director uh, who, who unfortunately you know, couldn't carry on with the project and left um, after a couple of drafts. Um, and this was never an issue when I was talking to her about it and we wrote for a Jewish uh, executive at the BBC and he never talked about it either um, and and then it wasn't until the film was finished and out that that we started to get involved in, in this discussion and um, I guess you know I understand people's sensitivity of course but I, I, I hope that one can continue to be relatively sophisticated about these things in film you know don't have to spell everything out so that it's perfectly clear that the anti-semitic right. person their viewpoint is not endorsed by the movie yeah 
I mean, I'm interviewing Jeffrey Fletcher, who's in the same category, nominated for you for Precious. Yeah, next I met, week. I, I've met Jeff a few times. Yeah. And you know, they they even said for Precious, they were saying that the film is showing the black dysfunctional family. You know, but you know, yeah. I just think that you know people got to let go of this stuff and say, you know, yeah, there's there's some of this stuff in the world, and and that's what film is, the show. Yeah, I mean, with with David's character, I I felt that it was helpful in lots of ways for me because you know I I remember you know when I started at school in the late sixties, I remember people making anti-Semitic remarks. It was an anti-Semitic country, much more so than now. Um, so I, I felt it gave the film a texture. Um, and there were Jewish gangsters in, in England at the beginning of the 60s, possibly because um, Jewish people were excluded from the mainstream of English life for anti-Semitic reasons. So, you know, it's a complicated thing, and and um, and I would have been sorry if we'd had to have taken it out. But at the, at the end of the day, both Precious and An Education are in cinemas and nominated for Academy Awards, and um, it's a debate. No one's stopping us from saying these things. No, and, and honestly, I never never crossed my mind watching the film, and so I read this online, and I was just no, okay. curious about sure. it. Yeah. Um, so going back to writing the, the screenplay, what was the hardest scene for you to write? Which one did you keep coming back to? Um, well, actually, I think it was a scene in the movie that got cut. Uh, uh, there was a, a scene in the movie where, at the very end, where David comes to find Jenny at Oxford, and I tried to write that again and again. And we eventually shot it, but it really didn't work. And I think it didn't work because it was dramatically inert that I had two characters shouting at each other about stuff they both already knew, and there wasn't really anywhere to go with it. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I didn't recognize that until probably it was too late, and I'd wasted a lot of time on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it was interesting, the ending. It, it kind of, you know, uh, David kind of just disappears, and... Um, it, it seems to feel very true at the end where things happen in your life and you know what, you move on, you learn from it. Yeah, um, it, I, I really liked that. I really liked that the last time we saw David was yes. um, him being a coward, actually, and, and, and being unable to confront Jenny's parents because it's pretty much that cowardice is what's got him into the, a lot of messes in the first place. Right. Now, what was the uh, working relationship with the director alone? Is it Sheffrig? Yeah. Um, well, Lone came came on board when the script was in a pretty good shape because I'd been working with, with Stephen Kidron who, um, on the first few drafts. Um, and Lone loved the, the script, and that was why she wanted to get involved. And I think that all the notes that she gave me just helped the film be more itself. Um, she didn't want to take it into a different direction, but I think there are times where she felt I could let it breathe more easily or... or um, uh, let the humor come through better or the pathos come through better. And um, I really enjoyed working with her. I felt that she understood it completely, tonally, and um, and that helps a great deal, I think. Yeah, was it difficult trying to keep that? Uh, I mean, it is often humorous, but at the same time, a sad story. Was that, was that hard to keep that balance? Uh, well, it feels to me like natural self-expression. I mean, that, that's what tends to come out in the books, I think. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, I mean, there are times where it's always um, tempting for me to make a joke at an inappropriate moment. Um, that happens in life, too. Uh, and <laughs> um, uh, I'm probably better off writing than, than actually talking to people. 
But yeah, that um, gets me in trouble too. <laughs> so you know, there are times when you have to rein yourself back. But basically, that mix of of comedy and pathos is something that I you know I really want to to write and and it's what I pitch for. And I like watching the movie and people are laughing for the first two thirds and then they stop. And that feels that feels right to me. Yeah, it feels honest. Now, when I think of Nick Hornby and I think of films, I think of great music. Uh, in fact, being a fan of Badly Drawn Boy was what drew me to About a Boy. Uh, <laughs> just, I love that soundtrack. I love that band. Yeah. Um, how much were you involved with the music for an education? Because it's a great soundtrack. Well, it is a great soundtrack. I, all I can say is that I had an aural aesthetic for the movie, but I didn't know the music. Um, it's not my thing. Uh, I just knew that everything Jenny listened to or all the music in the film had to sound older than she was. In other words, the music helps make the world seem sophisticated to her. A lot mm -hmm. of the rock and roll at the time was about being a teen, and yeah. I didn't want that in the movie. Now, did you discover any uh, music during this that you were, like, now a huge fan of? Um, yeah, there were, there were things. I, I love that Mel Torme song that... Um, uh, that Jenny and um, Danny dance to when, when David gets jealous and then takes her off and proposes. Um, I think also that Beth Rowley's original in the film is fabulous. Um, you got me wrapped around my little finger because it sounds like a standard that she right. wrote it for the movie. I was sorry, I, I felt at one stage she had half a chance for an Oscar nomination and it would have been so cool if she got one. That would have been awesome. Uh, now, I also heard that you're working with Ben Folds. Can you tell me something yeah. about that? Um, uh, we've been doing this project for uh, a while where um, uh, I send him words and, and he writes songs for them. And um, I think we're probably just about done now, so we hope to have an album out in the spring. So all the lyrics are mine and all the music's his. Now, how do you, how do you figure that out? I mean, I'm a songwriter myself, and... and uh, I mean, do you think in melodies when you're writing this, or, or in... No, no, it's been... What I've learned is that uh, for a song to be great, it has to have great music, and it can have bad words and still be a great song. <laughs> That's true. I, there's um, so many songs you know that you, you realize what the words are later, and I didn't realize that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but but you, you cannot have a great song that has bad music. It's all about the music, I think, really. Um, and Ben's a genius, so I can send him... I mean, I can try and pay attention to rhythm and scansion, and the beats, but um, uh, Ben turns them into things that actually sound proper, and um, I've really enjoyed it, and it's been a real thrill to uh, log on in the morning and, and get a new Ben Fold song um, on my email. That must be something, especially with your lyrics. Now, do you play an instrument? No, nothing. Wow, I'm surprised. Never had a desire to play guitar or, or pick it up and learn. Well, I tried a bit. I, uh, the sheer hopelessness of the endeavour really depressed me. So um, uh, I, I, I try and stick to things that I'm half decent at. <laughs> All right, that's fair enough. All right, what's next? I know a long way down was, uh, you know, optioned by Johnny Depp, but then I'm not sure if he's still attached to it. No, we've taken that back actually. And Amanda and Finola, who produced an education, they're producing a long way down. So we, do you um, know how long that'll be till we see that? No, we, uh, I think they're, they're expecting a new draft any day now. So, uh, you know, if it's moved on, as we hope, then, then maybe we'll be sending it out to cast uh, in a couple of months. So, um, 
you know that that's looking that's looking promising. Yeah, I love this. Yeah, I love that book. Now, do you think it'll Thank be um, in America or it will be in Britain? Set no, in? it'll be in Britain. It'll be it'll Good. be set in Britain. Yeah. I mean, I'm not against uh, you know what they did with High Fidelity actually. Like no, it, me uh, neither. Yeah, um, I think it would make no sense. You know, we've got a British writer and British producers, and uh, I'm sure it will stay in Britain. Okay, great. Uh, how about novels? Do you have anything coming up? No. Nope. Um, Juliet Naked came out in the autumn, and uh, it, I've been kind of swept away with all this stuff. I haven't really done a, very much writing for a few months, so um, I'm looking forward to getting back to something um, on March the 8th. <laughs> <laughs> now, you have tried other screenplays, correct? Like trying to write original screenplays? Yeah. Um, I, I I just got bogged down in them, and I, I couldn't find a way of making them work. And um, I think this was the first one that I've actually wanted to stick with. Uh, so um, I think I've learned a lesson from this, but I shouldn't give up on things. But if you stick with them, good things can happen. Yeah, this is an amazing film. I really enjoyed it. Um, now, our show, mostly our listeners are writers, screenwriters. Do you have any advice to aspiring screenwriters? Uh, well, I think just try and find someone you can work with. Uh, I think it's really hard to produce a movie in a vacuum. So if you can find an independent producer who thinks the same way as you about things, or if you can team up with a director or anyone at all, who's involved in the business, who, who can offer you feedback in, in a creative way, um, then I'd take it. I, I, what I wouldn't do is just sit on your own and do draft after draft on your own. Right. Now, do you find it – would you, like, write as a co-writer, like, a film? Um, do you think you could work with another screenwriter and, and develop sure, a film? Sure, yeah. That, yeah, I, I, that's something that I've actually tried before um, – uh, and uh, I enjoyed greatly, and I, I'd absolutely do it again. I, I'm, I'm trying to do an animated project in the UK with a, with a friend, and we'll co-write that. Oh, that sounds good. Do you, do you tell us anything about the animated project, or? Well, it's called the Baby Makers. It's um, it's about the people who live in the womb and and bolt babies together, uh, like little <laughs> mechanics. So um, it's set inside the human body, and and. Uh, the, the drama of the film is that the, the baby's toes escape and they have to go and track them down. Wow. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Sounds like I've taken a lot of drugs, actually, when I when <laughs> I um, knew it like that. Um, okay. Uh, just to, um, running out of time here, but uh, what about a favorite beer? Do you have a favorite beer? Favorite beer? Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, I love um, Adnan's Ale. Adnan's Ale? Adnams, A-D-N-A-M-S. All right. I want to try that one then. I'm, okay. I'm drinking uh, Rogue Dead Guy Ale is my favorite right now. But, uh, right. So, okay. Well, thank you so much for calling in. It's a pleasure. And, thank you. And good luck at the Oscars. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.